to the fourth mini podcast episode featuring brands, services, and organizations who share the DDG mission to provide real support for all people living with diabetes and their loved ones. This series is an entertaining and educational one-stop shop of what's new in the diabetes world. Today's guest is Dr. Hootman from Modern Vascular, who operate 11 clinics specializing in the treatment of PAD through interventional radiology. And we'll get into that here in just a second. This procedure is an important step in avoiding limb amputations and extending life expectancy in people living with diabetes and other things like PAD disease patients. You can learn more and find their locations by visiting modernvascular.com. So, welcome Dr. Hootman. Hi there, thanks for inviting me today and I'm looking forward to helping raise awareness of PAD. Yeah, word on the street, it is PAD Awareness Month. So when I found out about PAD, I was like, I have no idea what this is. And obviously you treat people with living with diabetes. So let's, let's hear about PAD since I can't pronounce it. Right. So it, September is PAD Awareness Month. PAD stands for Peripheral Arterial <laughs> Disease. It is one of three major classifications of arterial vascular disease, probably the least well-known of the three. I would venture to guess that most people have probably heard of coronary artery disease, mm -hmm. and that's disease of arteries to the heart, which can lead to heart attacks. A lot of people have heard of cerebrovascular disease, which is disease of the arteries supplying the brain, and that can lead to strokes. So PAD, or peripheral arterial disease, involves disease of the arteries throughout the remainder of the body. In most situations, that doesn't lead to trouble in most places with the exception of the legs and feet, which is where we see most of our patients. Would you say that the majority of what, the percentage of patients that you see, are they living with diabetes? So there are a number of risk factors for developing peripheral arterial disease. The, the biggest risk factor is simply age. Anyone over the age of 65 is at risk for PAD, uh, but diabetes is also an independent risk factor. So patients at a younger age, if they're diabetic, have a better chance of presenting. So we like to screen most diabetic patients over the age of 50. There are other risk factors besides that. Probably the big ones are cigarette smoking, uh, high blood pressure, uh, kidney disease, and people with high cholesterol or, or high triglycerides. And what are the signs or symptoms of PAD? I would have no idea if I had a, a symptom. Well, that's interesting. So PAD is actually a pretty, pretty common disease. Um, the estimates are that anywhere between 10 to 20 million people living in the United States have PAD. But up to 40% of those patients may not have any signs or symptoms at all. So it does start out in a silent phase. The earliest things that someone might start to recognize that give us a clue that they have PAD are uh, pain and achiness in the legs and feet. This type of pain typically will get worse when someone is walking for any amount of distance. And um, it can also wake people up in the middle of the night. So they lie down, they fall asleep, and several hours later, they'll wake up with achiness or pain or numbness in their feet and legs. That's probably the first thing. As disease gets more severe, we can see loss of hair from the legs. We can see some skin color changes in the feet and toes. In, in the advanced stages, which we call critical limb ischemia, where someone is really at risk for 
even having an amputation, in those patients, they can have wounds or ulcers that are very slow to heal or won't heal unless they get um, brought to medical attention. Hmm. Okay, so I've had type 1 diabetes for 37 years and I'm in my mid-40s. Should I consider getting tested? If you have other risk factors, probably. You're still relatively young. Um, we do have young diabetic patients that have significant peripheral arterial disease, although interestingly, it tends to be more pronounced in type 2 diabetics than type 1 diabetics. Isn't that a trip? And that's with a number of things, the difference between the two diseases. And I mean, I can say, and I'm not bragging, but I've kept my A1C below 6.5 or 7 most of my life. So I feel like maybe, and is that, so if you're well controlled, whether type one or type two, you're less likely to get this? Well, you can't prevent the disease from happening, Okay. Um, but we can modify certain behaviors to help slow the progression of the disease. And so if you're diabetic, certainly maintaining good uh, blood sugar control is part of that. Maintaining a healthy blood pressure, taking care of high cholesterol or high triglycerides, if you have those conditions, and walking or having some sort of regular exercise is probably one of the most important things. And then finally, making sure that you seek out medical attention to be screened for the disease. And if you have it, to get the uh, blockages that are, that are impeding the blood flow to your legs and be um, repaired so that you don't end up with the complications such as chronic ulcers, gangrene, and, and even amputations in advanced cases. Okay, so a lot of people with diabetes, type 1 or type 2 or whatever, suffer from neuropathy. I thankfully do not knock on marble. <laughs> and I'm just curious, do the symptoms mirror? Are they this similar? So you might think you have neuropathy, but actually you have PAD disease? Absolutely. The symptoms can overlap. And in fact, the PAD is probably part of the pathway to the development of the neuropathy. So the nerves which transmits sensation, in order for them to function properly, they have to have adequate oxygen and blood flow. The small vessels that supply those nerves are probably the ones that are affected earliest in type 2 diabetes. And so even though the foot might look warm and pink, those little nerves are not getting adequate blood supply because the small vessels supplying them are damaged by having the, the type 2 diabetes. And so because they're not getting enough oxygen, they're not sending a normal signal back to the brain. So that can manifest as strange types of neuropathic pain. Like a lot of people will describe pins and needles sensation or burning pain. And more importantly, it leads to loss of sensation. And that's the real kicker for people with diabetes because they can't feel the bottoms of their feet and they might step on something or get yeah. a small cut. They don't know that they've got an injury. It gets infected and starts to get worse and they're not even aware of it. And so it's really, really important for diabetics to inspect their feet, make sure they're cleaning their feet properly and seeing the podiatrists on a regular basis as well to maintain good foot health. Okay, so this is random. My dad has type 2 diabetes. He also has a number of other health conditions. And he has what he says is restless leg syndrome. He has neuropathy in his legs and feet, but I think that's due to cancer treatment and things like that. He's how old am I? He's 74. Should he get tested for this? 
Oh, absolutely. If he has symptoms of neuropathy and that age, there's a pretty high likelihood that he has peripheral arterial disease and he should definitely be screened. The screening process is very simple. In our practice at Modern Vasco, the screening begins with a clinic visit with one of our clinicians who will do a good physical examination and take a history. Then we'll do some other screening tests such as ankle brachial indices, toe brachial indices, and oftentimes we'll do a complete Doppler ultrasound of the arteries of both legs. And taking all of that into consideration, we'll have a pretty good understanding of the likelihood of whether or not significant disease is present or not. If not, that's the end of it, and we just maintain long-term follow-up. If we think that there's a high probability that there's significant disease, then we move on to the next level, which is to do an actual angiogram and what we call an intravascular ultrasound. And that combination of imaging procedures is the most accurate way to truly diagnose and characterize the severity of peripheral arterial disease. Hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> Again, it's another thing. I just didn't know all these things existed. And I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. I alluded to the fact that 10 to 20 million people in this country probably have PAD, but less than half of those people are aware that they have it because they've never been diagnosed. So there are a lot of people that have the disease, even significant symptoms, and that are at risk for progression. And so having this kind of chat is really about raising awareness so that not only people with diabetes, but family members hear things like this podcast and learn a little bit more about, you know, symptoms that their loved ones have that might warrant um, taking another look. Is this hereditary or is it just Lifestyle can, you know. There certainly is a component of hereditary involvement. Um, you know, it's, it's just another one of those things. We just don't know exactly why people are prone to it. But, you know, there's a predilection for multiple family members to have heart attacks or strokes. So there is probably some underlying genetic predisposition to the disease as well. Okay, so we've kind of touched on this, but what preventative measures can someone living with diabetes take in order to dodge this? You probably can't dodge it because we're all going to age and that's going to increase our risk factor at some point down the road. If you're diabetic, you're diabetic. So you, you have to take care of yourself. You have to watch your, your diet. You have to control your sugar. Exercise, again, I, I want to emphasize the importance of that. It's not just for the health of your legs and the arteries in your legs. It's important for heart health, brain health, lung health, and, and overall longevity. So I always encourage all of my patients to take up some regular form of exercise. And for most people over the age of 65, walking is probably going to be the most consistent thing that they can do that they'll find enjoyable. So that's where we start. Some people have been sedentary for most of their life and are resistant to try it. So I try to tell them, you know, this is like a new habit. It's like brushing your teeth. You've got to learn that at least three days a week, go out for intentional walking periods and do something to make it fun. Walk to a place that's pleasant or stop and get a cup of tea or a cup of coffee somewhere along the way so that there's there's a reward built into it. And after you've done it for a while, it just becomes part of the routine. And I, most people find it enjo an enjoyable thing to do. Um, certainly, maintaining healthy blood pressure. So making sure we're getting our blood pressure checked and, and treated if we have high blood pressure. Same thing with high cholesterol watching our diet. So all of those things are the modifiable things. Oh, and don't forget, don't smoke cigarettes. And if you are smoking, 
quitting is going to help. Quitting cigarette smoking and however that can be done, it's challenging, but we try to counsel our patients. And, you know, there are some uh, medicines that we can prescribe to help people once they've made the decision that they want to quit. Um, so that's a really important part of it as well. Okay. And I don't know that you can speak to this and it's okay if you can't, but the uh, legalization of medicinal cannabis in a number of states here in the United States, do you have any information? Is, or is that the same as like no smoking or is there any information out there that using medicinal cannabis can help? I'm not, certainly not an expert on the on the medicinal use of cannabis. I, I know anecdotally that a lot of people talk about it in, in using it as a, a, something to relieve pain. Yeah. And if it's legal in your state and it's something you want to try, I certainly wouldn't um, say don't try it. Right. Well, I appreciate your comments on that. I know this that's such, such a new thing here in the U.S. And uh, I'm all about finding whatever people need in order to treat their diabetes in the best way possible. Let's talk about patient success. Like what is it, if somebody comes in and is diagnosed with PAD, what are the first steps? Like walk me through the treatment or what that looks like. Right, so we talked about the screening process and the initial clinic visit. So let's assume that that's happened and we've decided that this patient has a high probability that they've got significant disease. So we're going to recommend an angiogram. So the patient will come in on a separate appointment and uh, this is all done in an outpatient facility. They'll have an IV started by our nursing staff and we administer IV sedation so they get IV pain medicines and sedatives to keep them relaxed and comfortable during the procedure. Um, they won't necessarily be completely asleep, but most people are drowsy enough that they'll take a nap and we let them sleep throughout the procedure. Those med medications also tend to block short-term memory, so they usually don't remember most of what happens during that procedure. Then what we do, I'll give a local anesthetic in the skin, usually near the groin, sometimes near the ankle, and we insert a catheter directly into the artery, and then we inject iodine contrast and take a rapid series of fancy x-ray pictures from the groin to the foot. And that is the, um, that's the angiogram part of the procedure, and it creates essentially a roadmap that shows how the blood flows throughout the major arteries from the groin to the foot. The next thing we do is we pass a wire all the way down into the foot and we slide a tiny little catheter over that wire. And the catheter has a tiny little ultrasound probe in its tip. So as we advance the catheter through the artery, we get a very detailed ultrasound image of what the artery looks like on the inside. And it's actually the most accurate way to assess the status of the vessel. It tells us the diameter of the vessel, is there a plaque in there? And if so, we can differentiate the type plaque. Is it composed primarily of fatty material like cholesterol or is there calcium in it? And it really aids in us in, in terms of making decisions about is this particular area narrowed significantly enough that we need to treat it? And if so, which one of our tools are we going to use to fix it? So that gives us all the information we need to make decisions. And since we're already in there, we're going to go ahead on that same initial procedure and repair as much of those blockages as we're able to in a single session. And so then we start doing the actual procedures that open the blockages. Uh, the simplest of those is called balloon angioplasty. Mm -hmm. And that's been around for a long time. People have heard of it. Certainly people have heard of angioplasty in the arteries of the heart. This is the same thing. Um, the, the balloon is inserted in the vessel and inflated while we're watching under x-ray. And it goes to a predetermined diameter. And it helps to flatten out the plaque and stretch the artery open to a larger diameter to improve 
uh, the, the space for the blood to flow through there. We do some other types of procedures as well. There's something called atherectomy, which is a really fancy word, but we have several different types of catheters that are basically designed to cut and or remove the plaque. And so that creates a channel through the plaque before we insert the balloon to inflate it. And that becomes necessary in certain situations where there's a, a large volume of plaque and just flat Finding out a focal spot with the balloon won't be adequate. Or in the case where plaque is heavily calcified and it's more like concrete. So cutting through it first makes it easier for the balloon to kind of flatten things out. And then of course, everyone's probably heard of stents. And these are little tubes that are made out of metal wires of various materials. And when those are released from the catheter, they open up under tension and help to keep the vessel open. So all of those things are something that we might potentially do even on the initial uh, procedure if, if it becomes necessary because our goal is to maximally improve the blood flow all the way to the foot so that we can prevent ultimately amputation and hopefully improve the symptoms that patients are suffering from PAD. Okay, two quick questions. One, what does recovery look like after this procedure? But um, what's the recovery time for somebody that just had that procedure? Well, fortunately, uh, technology has improved. We currently have devices that are designed to close the small hole in the artery that is made by the catheter when it's placed. And so this allows us to discharge most patients about one hour after their procedure has been completed. Um, if you look back 10 to 15 years ago, patients undergoing an angiogram often had to lie flat in bed for four to six hours afterwards. Many of these uh, procedures were done in the hospital setting and even some with overnight hospital stays. So it's become much more convenient because of the technological advances. And most of our patients have about a two-hour procedure time and a one-hour recovery. So single leg treatment can usually be accommodated in about a half a day's uh, time commitment. And so once they have the procedure done and they've recovered, you know, it's a whole day total, do they immediately feel better or is it over time? It depends upon the symptoms. Remember, again, about 40% of these patients may have no symptoms at all. What we're doing in that situation is really preventative maintenance to prevent a problem uh, from occurring down the road. But a lot of people with pain at rest, so these are the people we cl classify with critical limb ischemia, or those that have the most severe pain, they'll notice a change immediately in the pain in their foot. I've had patients in the recovery area say, I can actually feel the bottom of my foot. You know, I'll go to examine their pulses after we're done and I'll touch the bottom of their foot and I'll say, oh my gosh, I can, I can feel that. I couldn't feel that before. So there is a variable response and it depends a, a lot on how severe the disease is in the first place and how long someone has had the disease. So some people that have had neuropathy for 20, 30 years, some of that is not going to come back. So I always tell patients that if we do some intervention to open up these blockages, there's a 9 out of 10 chance that they're going to have a noticeable change in their symptoms. They're either going to have reduction in pain or improvement in their ability to feel something in their foot. How much of a difference that's going to make, it's just very hard to predict. I think that's great. I mean, I would have never known. And hopefully I never have to experience any of this. And, you know, going back to my dad, can he get that done if he, because I don't know, I don't think you guys are in Oklahoma. Can he have a test done at his regular GP or an endocrinologist's office? 
I think that if those practitioners are familiar with peripheral arterial disease, they can certainly do the screening in their office, and then they could refer the patient to one of our centers, and they could they could be treated in, you know, we're in 11 different facilities now all over the country and growing, so um, Oklahoma, we've got facilities in San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, so there are some places that aren't, aren't too far from Oklahoma that he could potentially get to. Well, and I'm currently in San Antonio. I just moved here from Oklahoma City. And I got to say, in reading your bio, you went to the University of Texas, right? Medical branch in Galveston. I did my uh, diagnostic radiology residency there in the late 1990s. Yeehaw, Texas. (laughs) That's right. No, I know San Antonio pretty well. You guys are really fortunate that Riverwalk has lots of really good restaurants and it's a fun place to take a stroll. It is when it's not COVID time. I got to say- Things are finally opening back up, and I'm really happy that, uh, yeah, I've had one outing since February, and it was nice just to be around other people, so. No doubt about that. We're all looking forward to getting back to some sort of semblance of normal. Well, anything else you want to share? Any links? If somebody's interested in learning more about PAD, and hopefully nobody has to, but I'm glad to know that these resources are available. Absolutely. Of course, the internet has all sorts of stuff out there. Some of it's good and some of it's questionable, but Modern Vascular has a pretty well-developed website, and you can go to that, modernvascular.com. And right now, what I would encourage people to do if they do that, in the upper right-hand part of the screen, there's a Learn More tab. If you open that menu up, there's something, there's a tab down below for PAD Awareness Month. And um, we have a couple of upcoming live webinars later this month that people can sign up for on that link. And there's no charge. There will be several doctors participating in those webinars where they're going to talk more about the same things that I've just discussed here. And then there will be live question and answer sessions on those webinars. So check that out. The next one's uh, coming up on Wednesday, September 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then the following week, Sunday, September 27th at 1 p.m. And so I would encourage people to check those out if they have more interest. That's a really good place to start. I love it. Well, I'll be sure that this is also included in the show notes and things like that because I want everybody to have the resources that they need and preventing amputations and having better quality of life is is a big deal. So I just want to say thanks for letting me participate. I think it's really important for us to work together to increase awareness of this disease because it's not well known as some of the other major vascular diseases. And unfortunately, it's pretty common and particularly in that diabetic patient population, that's an additional risk factor. And it does have significant downstream effects if it's not dealt with. So I think people just learning about it. And if they think that they are at risk or questioning whether or not they might be risk, getting screened is the first step. And that's not going to hurt to do. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I will say, Dr. Hootman, I've created a new series that will launch hopefully by the end of this month. And it's called Just the Facts, Please. And it's going to be interview like 10 to you know, 15 to 20 minute interviews of just physicians that can speak only about, let's just say pad or something like that. Because we all know living with diabetes and seeing so many specialists and endocrinologists, we don't get as much time in the doctor's office as we would like. And so to just have these little pockets of, hey, this is something to think about, or if you've heard about it, anywho, I will be sure to reach out to you again, because I appreciate your time and speaking so eloquently about had in life with diabetes. Thanks again for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank all diabetes. It's a daily grind. It's a daily grind. It's a daily grind.